Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. My name is Goose, and on today's show, we had a regular, semi-regular, he's kind of regular, he's been on the show before. His name is Chris Raymond from Unconditional Finance, and we talked about something that is a very hot topic at the moment. We talk about property finance strategies for high interest rate environments, because that is currently the environment we're in. It is currently a higher interest rate environment, and a lot of people are having issues with getting finance and how to navigate that and need some ideas and tips. We talked about lots and lots and lots of stuff. This is a probably kind of a little bit of a long episode. We could have just kept going. There was so much good stuff in this episode that we talked about. We talked about things like how much does interest rate, interest rate rises actually affect borrowing capacity. We talked about strategies people can, can use to avoid hitting their borrowing capacity limits as rates go up. We talked about should you be fixing rates, keeping them variable, interest only versus P&I, LVRs. We talked about what is actually happening in terms of value. So much stuff. Like If you want to really understand how to navigate uh, property finance in the current environment, a high interest rate environment, then this is absolutely the episode for you. I it was really good. It was really high value. You know, I've said this before. Like, I know that when we've hit a nail on the head, and I think this is a great episode that that a lot of people are going to get a lot of benefit from, and it's a very timely episode. Um, so I'm super excited for you guys to dig into it. But before we get into the episode, I want to let you know about something that we have just launched. So over the last couple of years, we've been developing a tool. We call it a property portfolio growth plan. Now, this is an actual tool that actually helps us to map your portfolio in such a way that it is going to meet your goals. So we take in take on board any existing properties that you might have or, or and then go, okay, what else do we need to add to your portfolio to make sure that you can hit your goals in the amount of time that you want to hit them? Or in fact, if you have no properties and you're like, I want to get started, but I want to know what the pathway looks like, how many properties, in what order, what to buy, when to buy and why to get to my goals in the time that I want to get to them. We've actually built a tool and a service to specifically do that. So we call this our property portfolio growth plan. Um, and I'm really excited to be able to share that with you. Now, if you want to be able to tap into that, if you want to be able to speak to the team about that, just head to dashdot.com.au, check out our services page. You'll be able to find a link there. You'll be able to book in a call with the team. It's a 30-minute call. And you'll be able to speak to someone about getting your own personalized custom portfolio growth plan designed spe specifically around you and your goals. So just again, if you want to get that, head to dashdot.com.au, book in a call. It's super awesome. I personally get really excited every single time I see the plans. They're just great. Um, and it's been really transformative for so many of our clients. And I'm looking forward to that being the case for you too. Now, one last thing. I would really love it as a personal request if you could like, rate, review, and share this podcast. If this is valuable to you, which I'm certain it will be because there's so much good content in this episode, make sure you share this with somebody else because I'm sure that you know somebody who's interested in property investing, and I'm sure that you know somebody who is thinking about how do they navigate the finance in this current environment. So share this episode with them. Without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it, and I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me on today's show is Chris Raymond from Unconditional Finance. He's been on the show multiple times. So if you are a regular listener to the Investor Lab, Chris will be a familiar face. But Chris, for those of the people who've only just started listening to the Investor Lab, this might be their very first episode, why don't you give us a little bit of a background, tell us a little bit about who you are, what is Unconditional Finance, why are you here, what's your expertise? Give us a little bit of an intro. Beautiful. Good morning, Goose. Um, yeah, I guess for the listeners today, Unconditional Finance, we're based in Sydney, a uh, mortgage broking company. Predominantly, we work with investors. Uh, we do all facets of finance, but yeah, invest, investment property finance is really our niche, our passion. Um, I'm an investor myself. I've got a multi-property portfolio. A lot of your listeners know that. Um, my team of brokers, most of them are investors as well. So, you know, we service clients all over Australia. Um been in operation around four or five years. I've been in finance, always working with brokers and in that sort of investment property space for around 20 years now. So yeah, I appreciate you having me on board this morning. No worries. Well, what we're going to be talking about today is finance strategies for high interest rate environments. That's basically the the thesis for today's for today's episode. And I want to just kind of point something out here before we get started. When interest rates started going up, you know, and you and I have talked about it a lot. And I think if people go back a few episodes and listen to some of our forecasts a few episodes back, we were clearly wrong, right? So interest rates are, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> straight up, all good. Interest rates have risen far more than most people expected. You know, and it's very, it's very interesting because, you know, there's a lot of people that I, you know, say follow on Twitter, people like Cameron Kusher. Like there's some people, some big names that are all basically putting their hands up and saying, Well, 
we all got that wrong. Interest rates have gone up far further than really anyone expected them to go up. Now, the other thing that I want to point out and where I made a mistake is I spent a lot of time focusing on how interest rate rises affect the property market. And I've got some very robust opinions on that, which I'm absolutely committed to standing by because they are absolutely true. What I didn't pay enough attention to was how interest rate rises affect the credit cycle and how that inversely affects investors. And one yep. of the biggest one of the biggest problems that we've seen lately, um, particularly with our clients, is you know they'll get a pre-approval and then they'll go to buy a property and in between getting the pre-approval before they start their property investing journey and then when they get to you know un- get get to conditional under contract, their borrowing capacity has changed so much that they might not even be able to buy a property anymore. And so yep. this, is, this is significant. And this was a, this was, and people might say, well, Goose, you're an idiot. Why didn't you think of that? Of course you should have been thinking of that. But to be honest, I was so busy proving the thesis around the fact that the property market <laughs> itself is going to be fine, which it is. And, yep. you know, the people who are buying properties are absolutely crushing it right now. So there's no, there's no debate there in my mind. But the credit, the access to credit thing, this is it's huge. And it is. Yeah, what what have you seen like over these last few months? You know, as interest rates have been going up, tell me what tell me what the finance landscape looks like from your side. How has this been affecting investors? Yeah, good, very good point. Obviously, topic of conversation. Um, as you mentioned before, I think we did our previous podcast around April. I think it was a day before the RBA was due to actually meet. So, I guess the listeners online today, um, I think we're forecasting twenty five points. I think it went fifty points, and I, I thought. You know, the RBA might actually steady for a month or two before increasing interest rates again. So definitely guilty in that sense. Obviously, they've been quite aggressive. Um, the big, you know, buzzword in the room is called inflation. And the tr- or I guess the RBA and the economy are trying to get inflation under control. But in terms of borrowing capacities, it, it is a very good point that you're raising. Um, you know, I've done some sort of modelling for a lot of our clients. And on average, most clients have lost around 20 to 25% borrowing power since that April period. So... And for and I guess for the uh for the listeners out there today, I mean the cash rate at that particular time for the first rate rise was 0.1%. So 0.10%. And currently we're sitting at 2.6%. And obviously the RBA is going to meet the first week of November as well. So you can really see how much the cash rate has actually increased. Mm. In line with that, the banks have all passed on those RBA increases. Um Pretty much mirroring what the RBA's done. So every time the, the RBA's increased by 50 points, the banks have passed on 50 points as well. Um, in addition to this, the banks also have a loading on most of their uh, you know, most of their pricing as well. So if you're a client paying four percent, they're stress testing your lending, both new and existing for the majority of lenders over a three percent margin as well. So in terms of borrowing power, um, around that 20 to 25 percent mark, and I've got an example. I mean, We'll make it nice and simple this morning, Goose. I've got a client, let's assume he's earning, he or she's earning $100,000. Very simple, no debts, um, nothing like that. Prior to these rate rises, that client could borrow around $750,000. So we used to always say... So that's a, set, that's a 7.5 uh, debt to income ratio. Correct, yeah. So around 7.5%. And we used to say that, I think on previous podcasts, we used to say six to eight times sort of annualised income is what the mm. borrowing power is now. Looking, you know, as of last week, once, you know, most of the banks have passed on that recent 0.25% increase, that same client, that same income, borrowing power now is about 580000 So it's decreased from around 7500 or 7.5%, I should say, um, down to 5.8%. So that's a difference. That's that's a decrease of around 23% borrowing power. So that same client in March or April this year in comparison to sort of September, October this year, is being allowed to borrow twenty three percent less. Have there been any other impacts as well? Because personally, so I got a um, I got a message from one of our clients uh, last night, and he said, "Hey mate, um, I'm wondering, and I'm going to ask you this in a minute. We won't go there yet." But he was like, "Hey mate, have you got any ideas on on how I can increase my borrowing capacity, etc.?" Um, I did have a borrowing capacity of seven hundred thousand, so let's assume that that was like I don't know, whatever. Three six months ago, whatever whatever the case yep. may be, yeah, I did have a borrowing capacity of seven hundred thousand. I now have a borrowing capacity of three hundred and fifty thousand. So that's a fifty percent drop. Now, yep. in his circumstance, he's got he's got a couple of properties that are um, in a trust, and those yep. trusts completely self service. And we'll get into. I really want to talk about all of these strategies in a minute. So let's not go there exactly yep. right now. Yeah. Um. But it's, he's got a couple of 
properties in a trust. He's got one property that's in his personal name, which is yep. heavily negative, negative, heavy negatively geared. Yep. But his income has stayed the same and everything else has stayed the same. But he's lost yep. 50 percent of his borrowing capacity. Yep. Why why might that be? I guess that um 23% borrowing power decrease is multiplied per loan that you've actually got. So Ooh. you know, if you were paying three and a half percent on yep. one of your interest or you know, on one of your loans, one of one of your investment loans, you're paying now around sort of five and a half or six percent. So you've got multiple properties mm. that decrease is almost compounded. Um other than that, I mean, without looking at this situation, we're not going to go down the rabbit hole just yet around trust lending and isolating, you know, those more advanced strategies. But that would be it, I would say, because that client has multiple properties, that sort of compound effect across their entire portfolio is decreased. Um, the other thing to keep in mind as well, and we can sort of discuss it sort of later today or all right now, is pre-approvals. Every bank does it differently. Um mm. And this is where you really need a broker just to sort of know what's going on. And what I mean by that, we've got lenders, if you've been pre-approved, say, in August, they will actually honour that assessment rate at that particular time. So the interest rates may have been 4%, where now they're actually 5%. So that particular bank will honour that assessment rate during that pre-approval period, which is normally 90 days. A lot of banks aren't actually adopting that philosophy. So they're looking at it, you know, Mr. Client, even though we've pre-approved you, when you actually find a property, we're going to assess you on today's interest rate. So your point at the beginning, mate, where you mentioned before that client, you know, clients are struggling, they've been pre-approved, they found a property, hang on, they don't actually service anymore. It's knowing which lenders are actually going to honour that pre-approval. That's part of the strategy as well. Are you able to, I don't want to drop you in any hot water, but are you able to say like what, <laughs> what lenders are doing that because I've seen that to be quite a big problem because as you were saying that, I was like, hang on a second because we're like, you know, obviously we help people to buy properties, right? And so we're helping people yep. to do that in 90 days. Like within that yep. within that period, they're finding a property and then all of a sudden it's like, whoops, can't get any money. So like if someone, obviously if someone's working with you, great, but if it doesn't yep. matter who they're working with, like how, how can they kind of know? Because like having a pre-approval, is yep. going to give people confidence to go. Yes, I'm going to go do this. And like, yep. you know, let's let's be honest. The emotional setback, the, the financial frustration. Sure, like, yep. damn, I thought I was going to buy that property. That's annoying. Whatever. But the, also the emotional frustration. You go on this journey. You're like, okay, I'm going to buy a property. That's a big emotional hurdle to get over. You then go and get a pre-approval. You're like, ah, oh, I'm on the home straight, and I've got the team, and I'm doing the thing, and I get the stuff. And then at last minute, you get kicked in the guts, and you're told, no, go home. Yep. That that's pretty that's pretty demoralizing for people. That can really it make is. people go that can really make people just basically go, you know, fuck this. Uh, I'm out. This is too annoying and the get the it's stacked against me. But if people Correct. how can people know it can you are you, are you able to shed any light on that? Like like yeah, who, who, I guess. who is gonna like trip them up at the last hurdle and who isn't? Yeah, for sure. I mean the, the big thing is you need to be asking your bank or broker, is this loan well is, is this pre approval fully assessed? Is this a fully assessed pre-approval or is it an actual computer spits out a, a decision inside of five minutes saying you're pre-approved but actually hasn't been assessed? That's okay. one question to ask. Now, not all banks do that. Commonwealth Bank, as an example, do a full assessment. Bankwest, who Commonwealth Bank own, don't do a full assessment. That's just an example. And, you know, the little uh, variances between different lenders and, you know, banks that own mm. other banks as well. You know, different. we've got a couple of second tiers that are do a full assessment. We've got other second tiers that don't. The other thing I want to highlight as well, Boosie, if you, hey, let's assume Commonwealth Bank fully assesses you. So, they, you know, back in July, back in August, interest rates are 4%, 3.5%. You know, Goose, you've been approved for 500000 You know, let's say the LBR was 80%. Let's say the loan amount was 500000 If we then come back to Commonwealth Bank and say, all right, the client's found a property, but we will take the LBR up from 80% to say 88 or 90% now, mm. that's classified as a material change. So, CBA won't honour that pre-approval. They'll actually say, well, hey, you're making a material change to the actual loan. We're going to assess you on today's rate. So I guess two things there. Ask your broker, ask the bank, is this loan fully assessed? Is it valid for 90 days? And the important part there is to actually make sure your loan's correct from the start. So not just, hey, let's just get it in. We'll worry about that later. You know, is it set up correctly? Is it set up an interest yeah. loan? Is it set up at 80%? Is it set up 88%? Is it set up under a trust or personal name? Because if you're making a change after the pre-approvals issue, that bank is going to assess you on today's rates. So. Yeah. And so for the benefit of people listening as well, like can we talk about the difference between a borrowing capacity assessment and a pre-approval, right? Because I know that people are going to brokers 
Yep. And going, hey, can I get a borrowing capacity assessment? And they're going, yeah, Yahoo, 1.2 million, off you go. How is that different? And to your point, you know, like maybe that's not factoring in like, okay, specifically what is the right loan structure? Like what are you specifically going to get to? Because what yep. I feel, so again, just to reiterate my point, property-wise, the market is yep. sweet. Like if you can buy right now, it's probably the best time that it's like, it's literally- thousand percent oh yeah. my god it's like we'll it's, cover that it's off just, probably just, surely yeah. a couple of points there but. Yeah, it's a stupidly good time to be buying property right now if you can buy property and i think where people are getting stuck is they're going right 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 cool i'm gonna get my ducks in a row i'll get i'll get a borrowing capacity assessment done and the borrowing capacity assessment done might be 1.2 million but then you know like psychologically they're going to start feeling like someone's lying to them like what can you talk to about the difference between <laughs> those two things yeah i guess you need to again ask your broker like us, me, as an example, mm. when we run a borrowing capacity, it's normally we're running it with the lenders that offer the highest borrowing capacity. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, we're looking at a lot of these second tier lenders. It doesn't mean necessarily mean we're going to take you there straight away. So, Mr. Klein or Goose, hey, your borrowing capacity is 1.2 million with one of our investor friendly lenders. But the strategy to start with is to fill your boots with these major type lenders where you don't actually have that higher borrowing power. So, that's part okay. one. So, all right, we use CBA. CBA offers you 800000 That's all you can borrow. Investment-friendly lend lender offers you $1.2 million. So, we're saying, all right, maximum borrowing capacity, potentially $1.2 The other thing is time is of an essence in the current market. Like, we're speaking to clients that we spoke to, you know, 30 days, 60 days, running an assessment. You can borrow 500000 to the client. The time they actually say, all right, I'm committed, I'm all in, Let's go pre-approval. Here's the documents. We're, we're six to eight weeks down the chain. You know, there's been two or three rate um, increases since then. So that yeah. 500,000 then diminishes down to maybe 450 as an example as well. So that's, they're probably the two key drivers, just knowing how the borrowing capacity has been run and who with. Um, yeah. Where am I going for my initial sort of portfolio? Um, and then also just get, when did I actually speak to the broker or the banker? You know, Yeah, okay. This is really moving. interesting. This is really interesting. This is really interesting. So a couple of things. So if you're going to get a borrowing, if you're going to get a pre-approval, make sure it's a fully assessed pre-approval, right? Correct. Not not yep. just a... Computer you know, says yes. Computer <laughs> says yes. But then also, if you're going to ask your broker for a bo for your borrowing capacity assessment, what you should actually be asking is, can you work out based on like, basically do a pre-approval, <laughs> almost do a pre-approval, right? Because, because yep. just saying, hey... Um, in the scheme, in the spectrum of 438 potential lenders in Australia, who might theoretically potentially give me the highest possible number of borrowing capacity? I yep. mean, that's kind of like, you know, that's basically you're just asking for a whimsical kind of number, which could actually set you up for failure, not success. Nice to know, but also what you actually want is reality. You know, I always say it's easy to paint a pretty picture, but it's much better to paint a realistic one. So, yep. so making sure that you're asking that and and shortening the time, but, but uh, time to action. So how can people better prepare? Like if you've got people, so say, let's say someone's going to their broker and again, they could be working with you, they could be working with their own broker, just, you know, it doesn't matter. But if they're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I want to get in the game, it's all good, right? Rather than just yep. rigging up and going, hey, how much can I borrow? Yeah, my income's this. And then waiting to get the number and then getting excited and then taking six to eight weeks to sort their shit out and then having all this kind of stuff. Before they start, what should they have ready? Like, what are the kind of just a couple of tick boxes they should have their stuff together so that they can go, yeah. hey, by the way, I want to know what is my actual borrowing capacity if I wanted to borrow on a 90% LVR and if I wanted to yep. buy a property tomorrow, yep. what and like, what do they need to be able to move that yeah. forward? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I guess it's a mindset thing to start with. Like, are you actually committed? Are you just mm. dipping your toe in the water to see, you know, where I'm? Where I am at the moment, um, or are you actually committed? Because, like you said before, I think this next period, before rates start to potentially come down next year, you know, you've got a good. If you've got the means to access equity, um, you've got pre-approval or borrowing power. Now is the time to obviously set yourself up. So get your ducks in a row, pull out your equity, get your pre-approvals, your fully assessed pre-approvals, um, and actually take action now. Um, and I think the biggest thing is is just speak to your broker or banker and say, "How I'm ready to move forward." I want to highlight to most clients, most brokers don't charge fees. Most bankers don't charge fees. A pre-approval costs you nothing. If a pre-approval lapses, I mean, it's not ideal for our business model, but if a pre-approval lapses, I'm not going to say, hey, Goose, here's $100 uh, invoice. You know, you owe us money. We can easily get that extended. So it's a mindset thing. Am I actually committed to doing something now? Am I actually committed to actually getting market ready now? And if I am, let's push go straight away.
Um, you know, most of our applications, as an example, are, are online. You know, you spend half an hour on a weekend, you can have everything back to us. We can have something to you within one or two days. We're underway. We're submitted to the bank. So that's probably the key thing. Um, the other point I wanted to highlight quickly as well, Goose, is I often say to our clients, it's actually easier. I know we can just say, you know, Lender A is going to offer you $3 million, Mr. Client. Um, I often say to our clients, you know, it's actually easier to get the new lending than it often is to actually get the the equity out from your current bank. We've got a lot of clients that are fixed. They're on good rates with your first tiers, your Commonwealth, your NABs, your CBAs. Their borrowing capacity is only so much. Um, we can't move them or there's no financial benefit in moving that loan. Um mm. And it's actually harder because their borrowing power is smaller than me just to pull out equity from that where I can, Mr. Klein, I can get you another four or 500000 with, you know, that investor-friendly lender. So it's, it's a bit of a, a strange one for clients to understand. Um, but, yeah, that's often the challenge as well. But I just say, yeah, if you're committed, let's pull the trigger now because if you're delaying and kicking the stone down the road and saying, hey, I'm not sure I'm gonna actually, I want to actually do this, interest rates are moving. Your borrowing power is decreasing with each RBA increase. Well, that's a so, good. That's a good next point. How much does a zero point two five percent interest rate rise reduce borrowing capacity? Yeah, two point five. Did a little bit of modelling as well. Like I mentioned before, two point five. Oh, it's almost sort of two to two and a half percent, roughly. I mean, it just depends on the client circumstance. Single, dual income, yeah. one property. But as a heuristic, use, as a heuristic for people to be thinking about, if I can borrow, yep. if I can borrow a million bucks today. Yep. And then the interest rate, so we're, as we record this, we're late in October. By the time it's come out, there'll be another probably rate rise, you know. If I can borrow, <laughs> if I can borrow a million bucks right now, uh, and then rates go in, the cash rate goes up by another um, two and a half percent, how much do you reckon that would uh, affect or drop the borrowing capacity? Just roughly. Yeah. I'm not going to pin into this. Two and a half, two and a half, two and a half percent, percent. Roughly. Yeah. Interesting. So, so 10 times, 10 times the cash, ca- cash rate rise. Yeah, on that's, average. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm. yeah. As I said before, that example, Mr. and Mrs. Klein, $100,000, no debts. I mean, they're, they're borrowing power. Obviously, the cash rate's fallen from 0.1 to 2. I think 2.6 we're sitting at the moment. Yep. You know, their borrowing power's <laughs> decreased by around 24 to 25%. But just on average, you're sitting in the lounge room, you see the RBA announce another 0.25%, roughly 2.5% of your borrowing power. I mean, prior to last month, you know, the RBA was increasing in half a percent increments. So you're losing sort of, you know, 5% borrowing power with each increase. Yeah, interesting. Just on average. Interesting. Um, We're not going to do any interest rate forecasting on this episode because we know how that went last time. (laughs) So, but I'd be interested, I'd be interested to know what are some strategies that people can be thinking about um, to avoid hitting their borrowing capacity limits if they want to be investing in the current environment. Now, there's kind of like two sides to this question, right? Because there's the... What can people do right now? Is there anything they can do to to increase their borrowing capacity? Uh, is it just as simple as like you need to earn more money and decrease your expenses? Is is it that simple? And then the other part of it is like like as you invest, like or it, what are the investing strategies that people can do? Things like trust and stuff like that. So let's talk about that. So we we'll start on the start on the front side. Is there anything people can do to increase their borrowing capacity in the current environment? <laughs> Like you said, earn more money, uh, spend less. <laughs> you can write that on their uh, their fridge every morning. You get up and you see that. But um, no, I mean it's we've covered this a, a lot of this previously, Goose. I mean it's you know it's the little things to start with. You know, Mister mm-hmm. Mrs. Client, you know w- w- what is your discretionary spending look like? You know, is there any additional holidays, TVs? You know, things you don't need to purchase. Um, that we can cut down on. Um, keeping in mind the banks normally have a benchmark in terms of living expenses, two adults, two kids, you know, roughly four and a half, five thousand dollars a month. If you're going over that spending and they will review your statements, then they're actually going to adopt the higher figure. So if you're spending seven thousand dollars a month and not five thousand there, it's an, an, an additional two thousand dollars a month. Living expenses added onto your, you know, service servicing and your borrowing capacity. So that's going to decrease things. And when they're assessing your statements and stuff, how far back are they going? Are they going back three or six months when they're looking at your living expenses? Good question. Depending on the bank. On average, one month, but we do have some lenders, ANZ, we'll put them out there, they're three months. So again, you know, working with your broker, um, and we often do, we put plans in place. Hey, Goose, you're spending too much money. This last Mm -hmm. month, I mean, unless we can highlight this is a one-off, you've been to Bali or, you know, you've done a holiday, it's a one-off expense only, Unless we can highlight those, but if it's consistent yeah. over a number of months, we put we put clients on a saving plan. You know, get your get your everyday expenditure in, 
in order. So that's probably mm. one point just to cover off. Um, can, can I just um, throw something in there? And you can tell me if I'm sure. just. I'm, this might be. I might be treading a little bit into the grey here, and I'm not financial advice. Big. Don't take any financial advice from this podcast. Full stop. Right. Just if you're listening to a podcast, general and, advice only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're listening to a podcast, you're getting your financial advice from there. You know, you you literally need to go and see a professional. Maybe not just a financial one. Right. So that is not. But could you theoretically, hypothetically? Could you just prepay a bunch of your expenses, right? So, for example, could you be like, okay, I want to go get a loan, right? I want to decrease my um, expenses. I've got all these things I need to pay for. I don't know. It could be like, instead of paying car insurance monthly, maybe I'll pay it annually. Instead of paying rent monthly, maybe I can pay it, I don't know, six months ahead. Uh, instead of uh, a gym membership coming out monthly, maybe I could pay that six months. You know, like, and could you, could you, potentially get to create a situation where your accessible household income now I don't, I don't want to i'm not hope i'm not breaking any laws or anything here by suggesting this kind of stuff but i'm just <laughs> like curious. no 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 this is this is like you could you could i mean rent's a little bit different so if you're paying rent you know often the banks will ask for a tenancy agreement or something like that but in terms of expenditure yes you know gym memberships, private health insurance, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, technically, it all has to be disclosed anyway, but mm. if the bank sees all these one-off sports bet, that's a big one. I see that all the time. Chris, I hear so many brokers talking about sports bet. I see always, like, always sports bet as well. Yeah, everyone, like, all the bro- all, loads of brokers have started creating loads of content online. You see it on yep. TikTok and Instagram. They're always talking about sports bet, and I'm just thinking – how many people are on sports bet? I mean, is this it's, is this that much of a thing? I'm like, I don't gamble. Like, is this a yeah, thing? Yeah, it is. It is. It always seems to be sports bet as well. It doesn't seem to be here. You don't see the old tab anymore. But no, that's a, that's another thing as well. I mean, you might be, Mr. You know, the client might have a couple of hundred dollar withdrawals. They might have a couple of one hundred dollar deposits, but it doesn't look good from a bank's perspective. So that's another thing, you know. All right, mm. let's let's just get rid of it. Stuff stuff. Stay off the punt for uh, three or four weeks, and then obviously clear that up. So probably stay I mean, off. Yeah. The, probably stay off the punt, like full stop. Full there's time. better habits. There's better habits, right? <laughs> like, uh, there's like better ways to spend your money than than just chucking it at the nags. Property. Or something, so. There's a million things you'd be spending that hundred dollars a week type thing on. So yeah, little things like that. We can sort of put a plan or a savings plan in place to you know give you the best the best possibility to obviously obtain an approval from the bank. So that's probably step one. Um, the little things, the credit cards, the personal loans, the hex debts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, hex debt's a big one. You know, increase the money paying $100 a month. But uh, what the way the banks factor it in, they're actually factoring in and forecasting your proposed rental income from your portfolio. So, yes, your income might be 100000 but if you rent to 30000 they're assessing you and saying, well, you've got 130000 income. Your percentage of your hex debt is X, Y, and Z. So if your hex debt's only a small balance remaining, that's, a, that's another thing that we say, hey, is there any possibility to clear that? Mm-hmm. Credit cards is a huge one. We've mentioned that before. You know, the banks will take your limit. They do not care if your credit card is cleared monthly. Every month, they're going to actually look at the limit. And most mm-hmm. banks are using a 3% sort of servicing buffer on that. So they're sort of the main things. Um, topic of the month is your interest rates. What are your interest rates doing? Um, I mentioned before, most banks have a 3% loading on what you're actually paying when, they, when it comes to assessments. You're on 4%, there's 3% on that. When they, You know, that's new and existing debts. So you're looking at, say, 7%. So what are your interest rates doing? If you've got four or five loans that are, you know, you're paying half a percent or 1% higher than the actual market, that's affecting your borrowing power. So mm. can we do something with your, your existing bank? Can we actually refinance to a new lender? Extend maybe the, the loan period. You owe 27 years, let's extend that back over 30 years. That's going to give you more borrowing power. Um, let's obviously reduce your interest rate. Again, that's obviously going to, you know, give you more borrowing power as well. So they're probably the main things, um, particularly looking at your current interest rates. That's that's really driving a lot of business in our business at the moment. Cool. Okay. So what about on the other side of the, what about on the other side of the equation? Like what are some, and these are kind of like more, I guess, you know, maybe advanced strategies and stuff, but can we talk about trust and stuff or any other ideas? Like how can people macro generally, extend their borrowing capacity. Yep, yep, yeah. So two things, just before we go on, I guess, the trust setup, um, and I guess, you know, borrowing or choosing which entity is the correct, you know, structure for you moving forward. Um, lender selection's a big one as well. Um, mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, we've got lenders 
majority of major banks, I'll take 80% of rental income. So if you're earning $100,000 in rental income, they'll only take 80 Eighty thousand of that. It's a very black and white rule. Yep. If you're doing overtime, unless you're in a you know police ambulance, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they're going to shade it by twenty percent as well. So lender selection. We've got certain lenders again that will take a hundred percent of overtime. They'll take a hundred percent of um, you know negative gearing. They'll take a hundred percent of rental income received. So little things like that as well. That could be the difference between an, an extra three or four hundred thousand borrowing power, particularly if you've got a multi-property portfolio in comparison to the majors. Or the first tier type lender saying no, you know, you're basically at your limit already. So, so that's one thing. Um, you mentioned before, Goose, trust. You know, buying inside of a trust that is a strategy. Um, you know, disclaimer again, I can't give tax advice, and we always advise our clients, and I, we do, and I have this conversation daily, especially with our more advanced um, clients and clients now in the current environment that are actually reaching their borrowing capacity limit in their personal names. You know, seek the advice of your accountant. There's pros and cons for setting up a trust and not setting up a trust. But from a lending perspective, we do have some lenders. We've got about four or five on our panel out of sort of 45 banks that can isolate and exclude that trust debt in the future if that property is basically washing its own face and, you know, it's not running at a loss. So if you buy, let's say, investment property in WA, it's mutual depositively geared, 12 months' time, six months' time, we get a letter from your accountant saying, you know, it's not running at a loss, it's basically running profitable. Mm. That bank can actually exclude that debt and they they, will, they won't include the rental income. But, I mean, that's an extra potential three or 400000 if that's what your lending is inside the trust of borrowing power that we now free up. And that's a strategy that not many bankers, well, not many bankers can do that, but that's a strategy not many brokers, unless you're playing in the investment space, are aware of. And I can put my hand up and say, you know, even many of Dashlot's clients, We've used this strategy. They're borrowing power. I look and say, Miss, you know, Goose, you've got one more property in you. Basically, mm. on your income as of today, unless something changes, you've got one more property in you. So, do we look at a different structure for the next one? So, then after that next one, we can come back and say, let's try and isolate that trust there. And then that allows you to go again. So, that's, that's a big one. Yeah, I think that's a really big one for people to consider. And again, massive caveat Chris and I, neither Chris nor I are licensed or, um, or, you know, anything to talk about trusts and tax structures and setups and stuff yep. like that. So you have to speak to an accountant about this kind of stuff. But the thesis around how this works is pretty is pretty solid because it does, we've yep. seen it actually work. We've actually seen it play out for multiple clients. The caveat being you need the trust to be able to self-service, which means it needs to be able to wash its own face or produce enough income yep. to cover all of its costs and expenses, all that kind of stuff. Like having yep. a negatively geared property in a trust is probably not a good idea. But again, that's a that's a tax kind of question that you would speak yep. to your accountant about, et cetera. But obviously a good way of doing that is obviously put your loans on interest only, right? And that's going to then obviously help the cash flow position in your trust. And you know, there's a few things you can kind of do around that to to help create a situation where that is going to be the reality. And I think that that yep. is, again, caveat, none of, don't take our advice from this, but I think that that is something that people should be really considering as yep. they are operating in this current environment, you know, like you, it's kind of like, okay, cool. So borrowing capacity is being diminished. What do I need to do to safeguard and shield myself from that? Yeah. Okay. Decrease expenses, increase income if possible, which is easier said than done. But also yeah. think about uh, what is the optimal structure to make sure that I'm not going to uh, run into run into limits. And there's trade-offs with interest only and principal and interest. And sometimes you can get higher borrowing capacities with principal and interest. And there's a few trade-offs there. So it's not a, it's not as clear cut as just like do this tick a box done bang but there are ways that people can explore to to be able to continue to navigate that speaking of principal and interest and interest only what do you think is the right strategy in this environment should it be should people be going interest only because interest rates are going up and therefore protect their downside uh protect their downside on potential negative cash flow or should people be going principal and interest to pay down more of their pay down more of their debt faster. Investment lending, I would always go interest only to start with. Uh, various reasons. I mean, you know, there's there's tax advantages, cash flow. Um, you know, people say, Chris, it's a mindset thing. I want to pay down the loan. Um, but yeah, I guess people don't understand, especially in a higher interest rate environment as well. It's all all about looking at your cash flow as well and you're mm-hmm. sort of maximizing your deduct- deductions and you know, what are your future goals, Mr. Client? Are you looking to buy a house to actually live in? If that's a future goal, it mightn't be now, but if that's a future goal, which most people want to want to buy a house, they want to actually live in, live somewhere. Um, then yeah, definitely you want interest only. I reckon ninety eight percent of our clients are interest only. You know, if you've got an owner occupied home at the moment, a little bit different. So I do see clients 
more advanced clients that do obviously have the interest only set up on owner occupier they've got to use it correctly use the offset account all your money all your rental income you know basically all your expenditures coming from the credit card sweep it monthly um but for traditional investors your mum and dad type people a lot of people on this podcast if you've got an owner occupied property you want that loan only on principal and interest mm. you're going to pay one debt down that is the debt to pay down I see this all the time, Chris. I've got the, the owner occupier, I've got the investor one, I've got the investor two, the investor three. They're all on PI. I want to pay them all down now. It's got to be paid down, you know. And that's, I mean, again, it's about maximizing your money in the best possible way um, because there's good debt and bad debt. We may have. Yeah. There's uh, actually, we did a whole episode on it recently called, called Should I Pay Down My Debt? And it's actually one of our most listened to episodes. And if you're listening to this and you haven't, and you want to dig into that specific topic a little bit further, that's a, we go yeah. really, really, really deep on that uh, specifically. You mentioned about, just just a little side note, you mentioned about like yep. most people want to buy a home. Now, I, now I don't know, maybe I'm a little different. Not than all other people. people. It's yeah, changing. The landscape is changing. It's, it's totally changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not it's, the mum and dad, buy your home, pay it down 30 years, have no assets when you're 50 or 60. It's not that. Yeah, it's, but some people do have aspirations along with investing mm. to buy their home. Not all I, people, and you're probably one of them. Yeah, it's really interesting because, like, I think everyone has this dream of buying a home. Even I, like, you know, I like to dream big, right? And so, you know, I'll be, like, looking up, like, I'll be honest, I found this um, I found this beautiful clifftop mansion in Uluwatu, and I was like, looking, I was like, oh, yeah, I want to buy that house. and it's a fraction of the cost of like what you would, it's probably the equivalent of what you might spend on some like shitty townhouse in Sydney. <laughs> it's yep. like, it's the cost, right? But I was like, oh, that looks awesome. Oh, and that looks wow. beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much, right? Um, but I was kind of like, if someone just gave me all the money to buy that, right? Yeah, don't get me wrong. Few mil- it's a few million bucks, right? I was like, if someone just gave me all the money to buy that, would I actually go and buy that? property even though i'm looking at it and going oh i think that's my dream house and you know everyone has that everyone i think it's good to visualize right so i use it as a visualization tool and i'm like ooh, i'm like would i actually go and do that and i'm like well i could take that few million dollars invest it create cash flow and then just use the yep. cash flow to go and rent somewhere it might not be that exact place but i can just go rent somewhere else and like <laughs> that compound yeah. and it just continues every, every time i think about like that dream of buying a house i just go yep. well if that money was somewhere else i could just yep. I mean, even rents, yeah. rents will go up. That's fine. But like, so will my, I'm just like, I just, there's the emotional side, which says, let's go buy a house. And then yep. there's the logical side, which is like, I can't see a scenario that, that makes sense. Like it just doesn't, it just doesn't map to me. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it does depend on your circumstances. I mean, if you want to create wealth through property investing, absolutely. But if you're living in Sydney or Melbourne and you're going to drop up, you know, one or one and a half million on a place to live most clients that blows your borrowing capacity out of the water yeah. so yeah but we're seeing it and you probably i'm sure you've done an episode rent vesting absolutely we're seeing yep. more and more clients i actually did that myself you know i rent vested for 10 years um built a multi-property portfolio um the wife came along and she had other ideas so we, we do have the home as well um mm. but structure wise for us p and i only on that all our rental incomes all our salaries everything going into that owner occupied offset account and all my investment debt is all on interest only the other point i just want to quickly touch before we move on is if you have an owner-occupied home but you've got goals again hey chris i want to upgrade our property in the next two or three years do not be paying that down do not be paying that principal down because that property will eventually turn into an investment property Mm. this is another sort of strategy that we see that's you know clients aren't doing the right thing it's the old mindset i want to pay it down that debt is going to be an investment debt at some stage in the future. So the ideal structure for you mm. listening on this podcast, if you've got aspirations, you've got a home already and you want to upgrade in the future, rightly or wrongly, that should be set up on an interest-only basis and you should be channeling all your money into the offset. That money in the offset can then go to your dream home to pay down that bad debt or have a big chunky deposit on that bad debt in the future. So that's one I see eight or nine times out of ten that the clients just aren't, you know, they don't have the right yeah. structure for that. So. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I always say the same thing. I'm like, is it your dream home? Like, yep. even if, even if, let's say you own a house now, or let's say you want to buy a house now, yep. uh, to live in, buy a home now. The question is, is it your dream home? Because unless it is going to be your like, this is my dream forever home, like, or at least forever for like 20, 34 years, going to break like, like, if, unless it's like the one, yeah, then, <laughs> then, then you should be treating it like a transient asset. Either yep. like a potential investment property or yep. as a transient way 
for you to be um, just doing something other than just renting if that, you know, if that for whatever reason made more sense to you. But the other thing on that as well is that, you know, emotions are real. It's all well and good to be like, hey, look, and I had a conversation with a client the other night who was like, hey, I currently own, uh, I currently own the house that I live in. Uh, we're trying to decide, do we invest, uh, should, do, should we invest or should we like buy a nicer house? Uh, and I was like, well, kind of depends, right? Like if you're, like if you're asking me what's the best financial decision, I'm like, well, investing. <laughs> I said, but it totally depends. If you've if you've got some, if you've got a kid on the way, for example, you're in super nesting mode and you're like, right, I want to, uh, oh, I've just got to, emotions are real and you've got to live that too. So you're just going to make whatever's the right decision for that. But that's not, there's so much more I want to tackle, right? So, yes. okay, yep. so basically you're saying interest only makes the most amount of sense generally, right? Generally, across Gen the board. Offset okay. account as well. Definitely want an offset account. Whether it's just an investment loan or, or you don't have an owner occupier, we, mm. we want offset, a offset account at least. A lot if of someone, people have the if someone doesn't have an products. Yeah, if yep. someone doesn't have an offset account, let's say they've got three or four loans and for whatever reason they don't have an offset account, what do they do? Well, where where is your money going? So like like is it for those that don't know, an offset account, it offsets interest. Put million dollar loan, you've got a hundred thousand in the offset, you're paying interest on nine hundred thousand, not a million dollars. Um, and it's actually calculated daily. Even a year repayment comes out monthly. So even if you've got $1,000 or $10,000, that little amount each month, compounded over a year, compounded over five or 10 years, is saving you, you know, 20, 30, 50, 60,000 in interest. And you can save yourself two, three, five years off your mortgage. So it's, it's again, structuring your loans right, making sure you're you know, using things like offset accounts as well. So yeah, okay, cool. Yep. Um, should people, because interest rates may continue to go up, yeah, pro probably going to continue to go up for a little while. I have opinions on this, but again, we'll stay away from for <laughs> <laughs> stay away from forecasting in this episode. But should I've people got be opinions as well? Yeah, we will. Uh, we'll leave that for <laughs> yeah. we'll leave that for another episode. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Should people be fixing their rates, or should they be keeping a variable? Because I know that fixed, fixed 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 rates have actually come down a little bit, haven't they? They have. Yeah, the market. Well, we're still advising our clients if you can. I won't get any interest rates, but we're 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 thinking. The commentary is we're thinking we're nearing the end of the rate cycle. Mate, yes, maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, our recommendation for the majority of clients is still variable. You know, mm -hmm. you're looking one-year fixed rates are at least half a percent higher, which isn't much. So they are coming down, but two-year fixed, you're looking at least a percent. Beyond two years, you're looking sort of one and a half percent difference between variable and fixed. So now is not the time. I've seen this play out before about eight, nine, ten years ago, I think 2011, 2012, where clients panic. They fix in at seven, seven and a half percent. Interest rates start to come back down. They're three, three and a half percent on the variable side. Chris, I've got a seven and a half percent fixed rate. It's mm. going to cost you like ten, twenty thousand dollars to actually exit that fixed rate. So, mm. if you can, in the current environment, ride out the wave. Think you know we, we're starting to see a little bit of light on the horizon. Um, in variable, in our opinion, for the majority of clients, is what we're recommending for both investment and also owner occupied as well. You also have more flexibility with variable as well with offset accounts can pay down debt if you want to pay down debt or certain other things as well. So I think ride the wave, the variable is what we're recommending for most clients. Okay, yeah, because it's a bit of a tricky one, right? Because variable means that, well, it is variable. So if interest rates keep going up, then your interest rate might keep going up. But then yep. if interest rates come down, your interest rate will come down, right? So um, there's that, you've got to be ready to surf the wave. But there's also macro benefits. It's easier to refinance. It's um, Correct. you know, you can, you know, and I look. Gabby and I transparently made that mistake early on. We really had no idea what we were doing, and we bought a property. And the broker was like, "Oh, hey, fix the rates." And we fixed the rates, and they were like, I think close to six percent. We'll say, um, it was not a nice loan. It was not a good one. Uh, and then it was you like panicked. Six, <laughs> well, we had we didn't know what we were doing, so we actually yeah. we like it wasn't even a case of panicking. We just said, "What yep. do we do?" And he said, "Just do this." And we just said, "Okay, I yeah, okay, let's do that." Right? This is pretty early on, um, and then we started Dash Dot, which meant that we couldn't actually like we had started the business. We had we couldn't actually go and refinance the loan. <laughs> so yep. so for like two years, we were stuck with this like gross like gross loan that was just yep. like ah, it was so painful. And to break it once, like to break it, uh, I think we worked out at one point we could, but the, to break it was going to cost five thousand um, dollars to break the loan, and it was like to break to 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 try and refinance it's it. A big it was amount. Like, it was like the five thousand dollars that we would have had to pay as a break fee was going to negate any potential gain we might have had by refinancing it to another loan. And so we just had to. It was a real thorn in our side for a real long period yeah. of time. So yeah, and we're seeing that. Like I'm finding, like clients are fixed. Um, 
and admittedly they're on a good fixed rate. But mm. I can't get you any more lending with that with that bank with that major bank. Yeah, hamstrung. You've got borrowing power, but we can't move you. So it's, mm. it's, it's, yeah, like you said, it allows you to refine it. Also, valuations is the big one. We may have touched on it before. You know, let's say your bank we use ANZ comes back at five hundred, CBA comes back at six hundred, but you fixed at ANZ. You've got equity in the property with a different bank, but because you're fixed, we can't readily move your loan to a different mm. bank. You're you're stuck. You've got borrowing power, but we can't access that equity. So most clients, as I said, ride the wave. Don't panic now. I know there's a lot of sort of fear. Don't read the Daily Telegraph and these online lenders, uh, online um, you know um, newspapers, I should say. Um, variable, write it out. Hopefully, rates start to come back down in the next 12, 18, 24 months, and then there's going to be some good fixed rates in the market. So then we'll start looking yeah, at that speak, again. Speaking of valuations, obviously, you yep. get valuations done, refine it. Have you, in your line of work, have you seen valuations coming down? Like, have you actually have you actually seen it generally that the property market values are going down? Or is it in isolated areas? Can you give us some insight from that? Because you're looking at you're looking at valuations probably yep. daily, probably- yep. Hundreds a week, so you'd be fifty or sixty a week at minimum. We there would you be go. As a team, um, yeah. I mean, answer your question is no across the board. Um, now it does depend in isolated sort of you know areas. Um, you know, Sydney may be a little bit established home. You know, eastern suburbs there may have been a you know a ten or fifteen percent reduction. But we work majority with the majority of times um, with investors. So our clients are buying in Queensland. Like one of my brokers, we had a laugh the other day. Even these old, I call them. Shit boxes, excuse the language. Mate, um, nothing wrong with the shit box. Yeah, we had uh, we had clients buying in Queensland, and they were not through you guys. Um, two or three years ago, you'd look at them going, "Wow, they were, they were struggling to stack up on a valuation sense at that time when it came time to completion." Two, three hundred thousand higher now in the yeah. current market. Um, I've even got clients that have bought off the plan, you know, twelve months ago. A little bit concerned around those type of properties. Traditionally, they're the properties that come in under market value. Sign a contract twelve months ago for five hundred thousand. Comes time for settlement, it's only worth four fifty. Majority of times, they're actually starting. They're coming in at contract price as well. So in the current environment, the doom and gloom, house prices crashing, all this stuff you see online, even these off the plan properties are stacking up to what clients mm. purchased before prior. So I guess to answer, to generalise and answer your question there, mate, um, no, not not seeing it. Um, areas, Queensland, even WA now, like we're seeing clients getting 20, 30, 40 grand growth from six to 12 months ago in WA now. So they, it's, you know, picking a market, um, but across the board, it's, it's, they're stacking up well. Yeah, cool. That's, that's interesting. Um, that's super interesting because it goes completely against the narrative that we, that we keep getting fed. And it also is in line with everything that we, that we see as well, which is really interesting as well. Can we yep. talk about, can we talk about LBRs for a second? Like, yep. because, Obviously, hey, if you can get, you know, it's great to be able to enter into the market on a, you know, let's say a five percent deposit. If you can get a ninety-five percent LVR or something like that, I, I saw. Um, They're coming saw- back for owner occupiers only. So there's a lot oh. of incentives. There are a lot of incentives tailored around your owner occupied market. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I saw, I saw a guy, uh, a guy that I know, and he's a great guy. And you know, I'm not going to try and um, uh, say anything negative about him, but he was. He buys multi-million-dollar properties in Sydney for investors, and he was talking about um, buying with five percent, five percent deposits. And I'm like, the yields are so low. I'm like, just the thought, of, just the thought of like that debt obligation, <laughs> like that negatively. I was just like, far out. Like that seems intense to me. So, yep. how should people be thinking in this environment about LBRs? Like, should they still be? Should they? Because like, kind of a more typical one for investors that we would often talk about is like a ninety percent LVR. Yep. Um, uh, for investors, kind of like a typically good, like good in inverted commas, good for someone, maybe not you, get your own advice, all of that stuff would be yep. like 90% uh, LVR or, or 88% LVR with NMI, yep. LMI or whatever, um, on an interest only basis. That'll kind of optimize your, uh, efficiency of return and all yep. of that kind of stuff in yep. the current environment with higher interest rates. Do you think that that still is a good combo of like interest only we've kind of covered that but do you think 90 percent is still the way to go should people be trying to invest with lower lvrs or in fact should they be going for 90 percent lvr but then if they've got any surplus cash whacking it in the offset or you know can we kind of talk about that a little bit because I think this is a really yeah. interesting thing to think about in the current environment yeah yeah good 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 question i guess um good debt bad debt you know we're, we're focused on investors here but i guess bad debt our owner occupy if you've got one 
you know, ideally you want to be putting as much deposit in as possible. You can't claim any tax mm. deductions on your own occupied property. But, you know, as I said, we work like we work with all people, but yeah, probably 80% or 70% of our books working with investors and a lot of your clients as well, Goose. So traditionally, um, we would gear our clients up to say an 88 or 90% LVR. So LVR being loan to value ratio. So a couple of reasons for that. We want to minimize the capital outlay. Um, for each purchase. If you've got aspirations to buy multiple investment properties, a 20% deposit in comparison to a 12 or a 10% deposit is obviously less. Um, I get the question in the pushback, Chris, but I've got to pay mortgage insurance. Um, you know, as an investor, look at mortgage insurance as a tool or a vehicle that's going to help you create wealth. So that's allowing you to minimize that deposit. Um, can't give tax advice again, but the mortgage insurance premium, it's not an out-of-pocket expense as such. It's added to the loan. So you're not actually physically paying from your savings, and it is tax deductible. Get your tax advice again, um, but it is tax deductible over a five-year period. So if it's ten thousand dollars added on your loan, you can claim that over a five-year period. So traditionally, yeah, we would try and gear it up as much as possible. I mean, if a client's got half a million dollars, you know, maybe we look at that client and say, hey, let's set this one at eighty percent. Nothing mm. stopping us from taking that above eighty percent and pulling out equity in the future. Um, I've got a, I've got a prime. Sorry, I, 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 you need to talk. Yeah, go on, go on. You keep I was going. just going to say, I've just got a prime example now. I've got a couple of clients I'm, uh, that we're working with at the moment, half a million dollars. Chris, we want to invest. You know, we're looking at, you know, do you need to obviously minimise that deposit? And they say, Chris, we want three properties, you know, in the next six months. So rather than three times 20% deposits, mm. these clients, good cash position behind them, but we've decided and they've agreed that let's minimise each deposit because you've got a strategy of buying multi-property portfolio. So Traditionally, interest only, gear it up to sort of 88, 90% for investors. Um, that's, I reckon, 80 to 90% of our clients are you know, on that sort of LVR range. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting, right? Because even if someone's got a million bucks in cash, right, and they want yep. to go and invest, I, I would argue that it is smarter to do a 90, we'll say 90% just for the simplicity of it, it's 88% including LMI and whatever. So it's a really good point actually that you that you pointed out there that LMI isn't a cash expense, it's capitalized into the loan. Because a lot of people Correct. think, oh, I'm going to get this loan and then I've got this whatever, three, five, whatever the amount of $6,000, I've got to pay that. It's like, no, you don't need to pay that, right? Like yeah. it, go, it goes into the loan and the tenants pay your LMI. Like you don't, yeah. you don't pay the LMI as long as you- Correct. Well, it's like, it's, it's crazy. As I said, but, it's a vehicle, it's a tool. It's going to help totally. you. And like, you just got to, people don't think about the return. They look at the cost and they don't look at the return. And it's like, okay, that, the, the cost of the LMI versus what that will get you in additional borrowing power, magnify, you know, anyway, we're not talking about LMI, but if someone's got a million bucks in cash, I would argue strategically that it would be a better solution to go 90% LVR and then put all of the excess cash into the offset so that they have the liquidity opportunity. Right, because they're still going to be in effect reducing their debt, right? So they can they can effectively manufacture their own LVR yep. by contributions to the to their offset account, and also still have the opportunity to just have complete liquidity of that of that capital if they want to go and do something else without yep. having to go through a refinance or without having to go through the rigmarole of like, oh, can I take more equity out? Can I refinance the property? Can I can I do all that? Can I, can I get an assessment? So I would argue like particularly in the current environment, like yep. that you're actually better to just, whatever you've got, stick it in an offset, but also use that as a tool. You might yep. you might have a million dollars in cash and then you go and use a $200,000 depo deposit to go and buy a million dollar house, but then go and put the other $800,000, uh, uh, the other 800, well, sorry, $200,000 to buy $2 million. Anyway, you get the idea, but just chuck all the cash in, chuck all the cash in the offset and use that as that kind That's of like as a parking vehicle. Yeah. Yeah, that's the advantage of an offset as well. With interest only repayments, so uh, yeah, half a million dollars, three hundred in the offset. You're paying interest on two hundred thousand. So, yeah, I guess for the listeners, Goose is saying, you know, rather than putting in a hundred thousand deposit plus stamps on a five hundred purchase, you're putting in a fifty thousand deposit plus stamps, but you're parking that extra savings mm. in the offset. So you're still only paying interest on three hundred thousand, as an example. Um, yeah. And you've got liquid, you know, you've got liquidity there. So if you see another property, you can pull 50 out straight away. So you're not tied up rather than us having to go back to the bank and say, hey, can you release more funds, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, as I said, most of our clients traditionally, um, and in the current day, we would sort of gear them up to sort of that 88 or 90%. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, cool. We, 
I don't want this episode to run too much longer because people will yep. tune out and won't listen, right? But yep. a couple of things I want to <laughs> a couple of things I want to tick up, right? We so could talk all day, really. Uh, yeah, I know. We could. I was just thinking that I was like, we this bloody. I was looking at the time and I was like, I man, we could keep going for probably an hour and a half, another yeah. two hours or something. I go talking about this. It's a really good topic and um, it's really interesting in the current environment. So a couple of things. I just want to recap on a couple of things. Yep. So when people are getting um, when people are getting a pre-approval to make sure that they're not accidentally going to basically get tripped up at last hurdle, make sure that it is a fully assessed pre-approval and then make sure that they're buying within that 90-day window, right? Not yeah, just, and not make sure it. your structure's right when you submit or your broker submits that pre-approval. So, so you don't have to go and redo the pre-approval, redo, right? Redo, then yeah, it gets yeah. reassessed as of today's rates. Yep. Good, good. That's a good clarification. So make sure that you get it. If you're going to get a pre-approval, make sure it's a fully assessed pre-approval, not just a bank uh, a robot spit out. And make sure it is in the right name, and also to the right specifications of the loan that you want. So, for example, yep. is it a pre-approval for you personally, or is it a pre-approval for your uh, that you're going to purchase in your trust? Is it uh, 80, is a pre-approval at eighty percent, or is it a pre-approval at ninety percent? Is it a pre-approval on PNI? Is it a pre-approval on interest only? Because if you change any of the detail at the last minute, you'll have to start again, and then you could end up in a situation you don't want to be in. Okay, correct. Yep. So that so that's good. Increasing your borrowing capacity is is basically. Either decrease your expenses or increase your income, pretty much. Right? Ta-da. <laughs> Ta-da. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's not magic, but they're they're the levers that you can think about pulling, and um, and there's some creative ways people might be able to think about doing that as well. Um, if you're if you're investing, it might if you're investing in the current environment, it might be a really good opportunity to consider uh, using trusts as an opportunity to maximize your potential to be able to continue to borrow by isolating debt and doing all of that kind of stuff. Again, get tax advice. We're not, it's not who we are and what we do, but it's a really good thing that you should be considering if you're a sophisticated investor and you want to continue to grow your portfolio. Yep. Offsets, I think this is a big takeaway. Offsets could be the key here, right? Yep. Because because you can park any and all of your additional savings rather than having any savings in your bank account, rather than pumping your money on sports bet. You'll get a better return. You will get a better return taking all of that sports bet cash and putting it in your offset than you will gambling. I, I don't know the facts about that, but I'm going to say that's pretty likely to be true because because every dollar that you're putting in your offset, you're you're literally getting whatever your interest rate is. You're making that return on your cash. So if yep. your so if your interest rate's five percent, you're yep. making five percent on your money. Like it's bloody yep. good. Better than in the savings account, right? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, we won't. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, your home loan interest rate is normally it should be higher than your cash savings account as well. I get that question all the time, but I'm saying two and a half percent. Your home loan rate's five and a half percent. So you're the actual benefit. You're maximising the benefit by having it in your home loan account rather than earning two and a half percent interest each month. So it's better than shares. But don't get off on it. We've said that enough times. But it's like it's probably it's pretty, it's pretty much one of the best investments you can make at the moment because you know what the return is. You know yep. that if your interest rate, if your if your home loan interest rate, your mortgage interest rate is five percent, chuck your money in the offset. You're making that on your cash. Like it's a bloody pretty good way to to maximise. It's an invest. The way I think about it is an investment because once all this stuff started happening, I just went, let's take all of our cash and chuck it into the offset. All good. Yeah, you know, it, like yeah. And if, I know we're short of time. If you're pulling out equity as well, throw it in the offset. So I mean, that's yep. tax free income. Mm. You're not getting charged interest on it, but that's tax free income. It's hundred thousand dollars putting in the offset, and paying an interest on it as well. So you basically there's hundred thousand dollars extra that you can put towards your wealth creation, which is actually deposits. what we're doing right now. So Gabby and I are refinancing and. Yep. We're just going to like refinance the cash out, yep. whack it in the offset, so that we have the liquidity to yep. be opportunistic if the time comes. Correct. So I think we've covered a lot of good, a lot of good ground here around how to navigate this kind of high interest, high interest rate environment. Yep. Do you have any other advice for investors around how to navigate this environment, or is there anything else you think we missed that specifically relates to like how to, you know, be successful in the current high interest rate environment? Yep. Review your home loan. Interest rates, that's a huge one. Uh, loyalty tax, that's what we call it. I mean, the banks treat their new clients and they do better than they actually do for their existing clients. You could be, I mean, with Commonwealth for 10 years, they look after me. I guarantee you they're not reviewing your interest rates. You are paying a higher percentage and, you know, what new to bank business is actually doing as well. That's a huge one at the moment. You know, we're saving clients two, three, five, ten thousand $10,000 per year. It costs you nothing to refinance. There's a lot of incentives to do that as well. So that's, that's a big one. If you haven't reviewed your interest rates, I'd say in the last 12 months, reach out. We'll have a look. What's available? Can we put you in a better position? So that increases your borrowing power once we lower those interest rate, you know, um, repayments. So awesome. that's a huge one. 
Awesome. Cool, man. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground on this episode. I think it's actually been really, really valuable. A lot of really good stuff in here where we've kind of like tackled heaps of stuff, everything from like rent vesting through to LMI through to it's just a very, very good episode. So thanks for that. If people want to reach out to you, where do they go? Uh, Chris at unconditionalfinance.com.au, Facebook page, Instagram page. Uh, yeah, reach out. So one of, one of the team members, myself, you can book in an appointment with us and, yeah, more than happy to chat, whether it's just investment, um, general chit-chat or whether it's reviewing your portfolio. So please reach out. And, yeah, let's try and uh, look at your situation leading into Christmas. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for your time, Chris. Appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Cheers.